The following episode of Fofop is classified MA. It contains some coarse language, some nudity, drug references, a sex scene, time travel, terrible Batman impersonations, a Charlie Clausen pronounced Clausen shaped hole, and mild coarse language. Fofop advises that the program is not suitable for persons under the age of 15, and minors must be accompanied by an adult guardian or priest. This is John Deek speaking. Everyone relax. This is Tofa. Ironically, I'm not relaxed. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Fofop. I'm Will Anderson and uh, joining me, uh, it's actually been a little while. It uh, has. A very regular guest on the podcast. It hasn't been that long since the listeners have, well, it's been actually about the same amount of time. What am I talking about? Let's just introduce you. It is guest Charlie Clawson, uh, Matt Kirshen. Hey, Will. I, I, I did about two months where I didn't do a podcast. So even though I put a couple out because I had some up my sleeves, I didn't you actually... You little podcast I magician, you. I wasn't well. I had more up my sleeves and then I did my podcast magic trick was making them all disappear. <laughs> King Dick. How I many am, times have you done that now? Oh, like, I reckon I've lost in total over 10 episodes now. Wow. I mean, it's incredible. This is episode about 194. It should be 204. Well, I remember the live one that we did. The, like, t- the 200? Yeah. No, because like, we haven't caught up to there yet. We so that, should be at... That one should have already happened. Okay. But I still have it on my computer. But I'm terrified because often I have things on my computer and then they just disappear off my computer. Well... May I suggest a backup drive? But Mate, look at my table. Look at how many backup drives there are there on the table. <laughs> oh, there are two separate ones that have been plugged into that computer alone yesterday. And yet, for whatever fucking reason, like sometimes they just... Like sometimes I think that I am like in Fight Club or something you, and I'm imagining recording these. Some other, or there's some other will. There's some other part of you that just gets up like a naughty podcast imp and just deletes them in the middle of the night. Well, there's one that I can't understand. This is the one that I just... Okay. So this is just a classic example of someone never having learnt their lessons, right? So uh-huh. um, I lost a, a bunch of them. Yeah. Like a bunch of them got lost, but right. it was only about four or five of them. And then after that, after the loss, after I went to a computer guy to see if we could recover them after the loss, uh-huh. uh, I then recorded two new ones post-loss with everything that I'd learnt from the loss with uh, Shane Moss and with Ronnie Chang. Now, here's the best thing about the Ronnie Chang episode. It was to make up for the first time that Ronnie was on that was one of the ones that I lost. Right. Now, I've also lost that one. (laughs) In a complete separate incident, I have managed to lose. It's like I'm subtly trying to sabotage Ronnie Chang's career. (laughs) Like my my, my computer is going, you know what? Ronnie's doing fine without your help. fuck Ronnie. (laughs) Fuck Ronnie. That's where you draw your line. You've always said you're supportive of everyone and the rising tide lifts all boats, but... Everyone has a fucking line and you've reached yours. (laughs) You won't do it yourself because you're too nice a person. So we're doing it for you. So your your other your Brad the Brad Pitt side of episode is erasing Ronnie Chang's podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, here's a thought of what you could do. Um, because you've got your laptop open right now that's not being used. Uh Uh-huh. Two thoughts. My 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 second thought that I'm now interrupting with the first thought is you could just use that to record a backup at the same now, time. Now, here's an interesting thing. Like, if you tell me your second thought first, uh-huh. does it become your first thought or does your first thought remain the first thought that you had in your head? Well, here's what I'm doing. No, I'm keeping this one as the first thought because right. firstly, it's the first one I came to. And secondly, okay. 
I think it's the better of the two. Okay, sure. So, speech-to-text software has got vastly improved in the last 10, 15 years. Uh So, here's what I think you should do. You should have one of those things open Uh while recording and just have it transcribe the entire podcast. And then every time you lose it, you get the missing podcast recreated by actors. I mean, this is pretty good. <laughs> this is better than the idea because Charlie and I, for our 100th episode, we hired a uh, stenographer because <laughs> we're so famous for losing episodes that we decided, and we also get distracted so often about what we were talking about. We were like, we will hire a stenographer and have a stenographer on stage with us. And then at any stage, we need to refer to what we've just talked about. Well, <laughs> that's great. So this is, but this is a much cheaper model. This is a much You've cheaper version. You've just got a much on a, like, you could do this every well, now episode. Now I feel like a dick because I support labor rights and I've basically just put our stenographer stenographer out of work oh, mate, you know what they fucking are doing fine yeah <laughs> fucking stenography costs a lot more than you'd imagine does it really there's sometimes when you come up with a joke that you're like we should have costed this joke first <laughs> is this an australian stenographer or an american stenographer well i mean i just think in general stenographers is a specialized right you know and the thing is the trick is it's not just like you don't they they, they hit you at every stage the stenographers. Oh, right? yeah. Like, they get you at the start. I'll tell you, you all, to, those bloody stenographers. I mean, <laughs> you have to hire a stenographer. Right. right? And, oh, and That's secondly, your first expense. Right. So, the secondly, okay, apparently you can't just get one for an hour. you got to hire them for a couple of hours, right? Right. And then it's a Sunday, and apparently, like, stenographers are getting three times or whatever on a <laughs> Sunday, right? Then your stenographer gets there. Then you think, okay, job's done, right? No, 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 mate. No. No, then you got to pay per page. For the actual... You're kidding me. Mate, they get it every stage. It's like they take the free photo at the start of the ride at like Movie World or whatever. But then at the end, when the photo's already like developed and in its little frame, then it's like, oh, it's 15 bucks for the photo. Well, you've spawned it. Yeah. You know? You didn't... Oh, and you're also going to need the frame and that costs more. And also, how long did the photographer take to take that picture? So that would be... So that's... Yeah, exactly. Fucking stenographers. That's what stenographers are doing, mate. Fuck those stenographers. So fuck them. If we can take them down. I'd like to think, I haven't listened to the 100th episode where you had a stenographer, but I'd like to think you had a rant about stenography and the costs that your stenographer had to stenograph. What's the word for it? Transcribe. That would be it. But I like stenograph. Everything should be like, I think if you're a stenographer, you should like refer to all other forms of communication. It's like, you know how like email is electronic mail? Like I, I'd like to like you know the, the, in the stenographers community they like uh, yeah they refer to it as, as Easter egg can or you whatever just, yeah. you know like <laughs> can you just hand stenograph that shopping list for me please right yeah I also think now every action should be the verb version of that person's job like oh. we should go on stage and comediate <laughs> <laughs> some good comediating there Will right. Yeah, I like it. It's an evolution in the craft. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. What do you think? This is interesting to me. Uh-huh. Um, speaking of comediation, uh, tell me what you think is happening in comedy at the moment. Like, I think we've been through a period of time where, like, uh-huh. you know, you saw the emergence of, like, you know, because as we all know, like, comedy goes in waves. It goes in waves of, like, you know, there are periods of time where... And, of course, all comedy is existing in these time periods. But, you know, there's a time where, like, you know, everyone was trying to be Seinfeld. You uh-huh. know, that was the style of comedy. You couldn't walk into the Gotham Comedy Club in New York without seeing guys in slacks with their, you know... Uh, well, there's definitely a thing, and I think we might have talked about this before on the show, but, like, every, every time someone big breaks through... 
you can tell when they've really broken through because it ruins a generation of open mics. Right. <laughs> like, right. Just, so like when I started when I started in the UK in a, like early the early two thousands, everyone was some variant of Eddie Izzard or Bill Hicks. Yeah. Like it was one of those two. Bill Hicks was actually like a, a disease that America sent to eradicate British comedians because <laughs> British comedy was on a big rise and much like a myxomatosis or something they introduced to get rid of rabbits. That, that was what they were like, we're going to send Hicks over. And then and, like, like and then people just like, take- this is brilliant. We love this guy. And then he'll just destroy generations of great British talent. And as people just do a subpar imitation of what they mistakenly think is good about him. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a good plan. Uh, what what do you? So we obviously have so had I, this period where it's been very heavy, and you sort of. Like, so I think now there's a few things going on in different. Well, it, also it's different. I was going to say it's different in different countries, but less so than it used to be. Uh huh. Because of the World Wide Web and stuff. Yeah. So. Or the World Wide Standard. I think England. There's definitely still a lot of Stuart Lee or Kitson. Uh huh. But there's a lot of Stuart Lee. I think is responsible for a lot of subpar deconstruction on British <laughs> of the, in the British stand-up circuit. Right. Certainly in New Iraq, so people kind of like, oh, a little peek behind the curtain there, a little, I'm just going to explain what I'm doing there, but not as well as he does. Right. Yeah, I mean, deconstruction, it's, it's like at a restaurant, really, isn't it? I mean, like, you know, you can serve a deconstruction, a reimagining yeah. of a dish, and if you nail it, then that's fine. But, like, if you don't nail it, you've just left something off, something that's ordinarily good. Yeah, it's... Like, like, <laughs> like great jazz musicians can still play scales. Right. <laughs> <Like> it's, <laughs> it's... Yeah, you've got, to get, get, you've got to get to the point where people can't see what you've done before you need to explain to them what you've done. Yeah. That's or, what I would say. Yeah. Like, you know what I mean? Like... Or any comedian, least- any comedian on stage who's telling you what they've just done, then in any form, you know, I mean, I don't mean just literally saying, "See what I've just done there," but yeah. like that's all deconstruction really is in some way is a, like a version of, and it can be a very clever version of. This yeah. is what I've just done, you know. I'm, you know, by the very nature, I'm of doing it. comedy about the fact that I'm doing comedy, right? Okay, or the so, fact that other people are doing comedy. But some of it is just like exposing, like I mean, people are going, "Oh no, no, we saw what you did." Yeah, like you don't need to. T- Tell us that because it was very evident in the way you performed it in the first place. Yeah. <laughs> you need to be able to get past the point where people can't see what you've done before you get to the point where you can tell people what you've just done. Yeah. And I think in some way cases, and I, I'm definitely, I've been guilty of all of these things over the uh, various times. And I think, I, but you notice it more in other people. Deconstruction is just another form of avoiding ownership of your material of taking one step away from what you're doing in case it doesn't work. So, like, ironic detachment is a way of going, oh, well, I, yeah, that didn't... If it, of not having to fully commit to a joke because it's slightly embarrassing if the joke doesn't land. And there are other gimmicks and methods that people have used over the years for that same thing, like bravado and ballsy or, like, catchphrases or any... Well, I mean, I use a combination of those things and, and the combination of the very thing that we're talking about, yeah. which is that deconstruction thing. But I, I try not to have any joke that relies on it. Right. But what I might have in a set, and I remember a couple of times from this year's set, that 
Okay, so there was a joke. I'll explain the joke and I won't do the joke. I'll just explain to you what I mean by the joke, right? So uh, basically there's these uh, anti-halal protests in Melbourne while I was there. Uh, Reclaim Australia, they called themselves. And they had like, you know, uh, know, they were anti the burqa and anti-halal and whatever, right? Okay. But they'd been infiltrated also or not infiltrated. Maybe they were the people there in the first place by neo-Nazis and stuff like that, right? And bikers and shit like that. So it got really violent and nasty. And that happened in the middle of the festival. So I had a joke in like about that thing uh, where I said, you know, where I talked about the anti-halal movement and blah, blah, blah. And then I said, but my favorite bit was when I, uh, when they, you know, finished like, you know, ranting about halal and then just all got on their motorbikes and because their big thing is halal funds terrorism. That's the point you've got to get. They're like, you know, we don't buy halal foods because halal funds terrorism. And then they all just got off and rode off on their motorbikes. And this was the line that I would use, which was, and rode off on their motorbikes, which are apparently fueled by irony. Uh, Right? Now that joke is a joke that I think is a good joke. I think it's a good and joke. I it, saw... I when, s- when it landed... Yeah. Like, it would land hard. But on the night when it didn't land, I would have to do that, like, one where you go, like, because motorcycles are filled with petrol, which has a direct... Like, you know, yeah. you'd probably only get need to get to there before people were like... And then I'd have a whole bit on how some nights I didn't have to explain that to the audience. <laughs> and I think that is I the moment legit, for yeah. those bits. Because A, it gets you out of a moment where something didn't quite land. Yeah, and th- B, it gives you a moment to have a kind of organic bit of fun and then... I think there's a difference between doing that or if you've gone with good motorbikes with fuel by irony and then you just just a little joke there about the situation or whatever, like that kind of right. like side. <clears throat> and, and you know, we've, all of us have a very, I, I've definitely can think of a number of times where I've done th- any number of these different things to avoid having to dive headlong into a joke that might not. Oh my God. hit hundred percent. And at like a set list. Yeah. Like I mean, at a set list, Often, like, half of my set is shit like that as I'm, like, you know, wandering around a topic or a thing or trying to explain it to people. Well, set list as well, set list as, well as that thing where you're just, you're blindly waving around in a darkened room and you're hoping at some point you're going to grab something useful. Right. <laughs> like, it's just... And so you reach a point sometimes where, depending on what the audience is like, you're just like, I'm going to move faster and faster and grab more and more things because right. that'll up the chance that one of these is going to be gold. It's so basically like you're on one of those uh, TV cooking shows and you haven't decided what meal you're going to make. <laughs> so you're doing the bit in the kitchen where you have to get the ingredients and you're just like, fuck it. I'm yeah. going to get anything you can make food out of. I'm just going to chop things. I'm just, just gonna, chopping. I'm just going to have ingredients until <laughs> some of them look like they go together right. and I have an idea. <laughs> Yeah, so I think I think like I think most most trickery is excusable in set list, right? Because fuck it, like edit when you're if it's a great crowd, then you, and then it's glorious. But if it's a slightly trickier crowd, then just anything you can do to get them on board, particularly at first. We did that show together just recently at the the Hollywood Improv, the the, oh, co- the, the comedy club, and it works really well there. I I did yeah. not have a sense of whether it would work or not work in the room but it, it really worked they've done two there now and the second and this one was better the first one was good but the second one i think was even like they're getting more into it yeah i mean the crowd really kind of appreciated the show and they had the yeah. guy playing piano like live on stage which just is one of those great things that if you have a moment where you can't go somewhere else you can have some fun with him or that yeah because or- avery's funny enough to be a decent foil for whatever nonsense and every so often he jumped in. Right. Yeah, really fun. Like, I mean, just a really 
fun show. Like yeah. I thought. Yeah, I thought that was like, oh, this is this could really work here. Yeah, and I think they're planning to make it a regular thing and maybe roll it out to some of the other improvs. I I don't know whether that's confirmed yet, but maybe I'm speaking out of turn. But then this isn't going to go out. Maybe ever. Who knows? I mean, who knows? Yeah, I mean, it is. <laughs> when it goes out in December, now, I've, often that's the best one. When I put up one of the ones that is clearly like from a another time. I put up an episode of Tofop that Charlie and I recorded uh, and it was... Uh, it was, I think, end of January because we were talking about Australia Day coming up. It was sold. It was just, it was just you two on crackly wax cylinders. Right. Yeah. It was actually I. D- I downloaded it to my computer off a cassette tape. Yeah. That's, it's just Charlie reading Jack and Jill slowly. It's the two of us on ham radio, <laughs> yeah. and it's it's good though. I mean, if you <laughs> ignore the static and the fact that we say over at the end of every <laughs> sentence. Weirdly enough, we still don't say over as many times as we normally say the word totally in regular episodes. So. <laughs> um. The uh, one of the two old guys who lives in the house that Jesse and Andy live in, uh-huh. my co-hosts of my show, uh, whenever recording a Probably Science, uh, he wanders past and goes, have a good blog. <laughs> <laughs> now, on purpose or? Nope. nope, that's just the best word he's found so far for what it is that we're doing. You know, I mean, podcasts are essentially a blog for people who can't write or read. Yeah. You know. So I hope you're enjoying it, you illiterate scum. I mean, this it, it's <laughs> heaps easier to do a podcast than it is to do a blog. Like, blog, writing is hard. It is. People always, like, somebody the other day online was like, oh, when are you going to take some, you know, time off and uh, write, a, write a book? Yeah. And I was like, well, I'm not going to do that. Because it would mean I have to take time off writing all the things that I actually enjoy doing and doing the podcast and all those other things for something that no one will ever read. It makes you wonder how those monkeys and typewriters do it. I mean, how many monkeys with typewriters do you think that I would need? I mean, you need a thousand or – well, I mean, originally it was an infinite number of monkeys. Yeah, and that's But then I heard it got down to like a thousand monkeys, With technology, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, they're better computers. Yeah. And all that (laughs) – with autocorrect. <laughs> right. So, yeah. It was originally an infinite number of monkeys on typewriters. The good news is now, we've like, got it down with modern day technology. A thousand, a thousand monkeys in an afternoon. Right. And to be honest, now the iPhone 6 Plus is out. We think <laughs> we maybe 800 monkeys. Yeah. <laughs> maybe like 100 baby monkeys to do some of the technology stuff. But And, you know, it probably get outsourced to some foreign monkeys that are cheaper. We got a couple of pandas, some baby pandas <laughs> that <laughs> are working for bamboo, and we just we just think this is the way to go. No, that sounds cruel, but that's actually like that much bamboo is actually a lot for them. All right for them. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> we don't eat bamboo. Yeah, like for for us, like we go like that's not enough bamboo to live on. Right, but. But you said them, that to a couple of pandas that you've got writing your book for you. Mate, if you give a panda, this is what you don't understand about pandas, yeah. uh, is that if you give a panda two shoots of bamboo, that is like the equivalent of giving uh, a, like a normal human person the keys to Willy Wonka's chocolate factory. Yeah, it's, that, it's almost too much. It's too much. We're almost too generous to them. I mean, you can kill them with generosity. <laughs> you've got to be... I think we need to scale back on the bamboo. Right. I mean, this is it. Yeah, let's... You know what? <laughs> we'll give them one stick of bamboo and one stick of the bamboo substitute that we've worked up in the <laughs> laboratory. Uh, well, I say we have uh, yeah. these uh, giraffes that we've got working in another lab. I mean, they've worked out the substitute, but 
I mean, they, I mean, they're brilliant. This is the great thing about your giraffe is uh, can work on two layers of the office at the same time. <laughs> like that's the great thing. Don't have, we're saving so much time for people not having to go upstairs, downstairs, oh, elevators. The ladder costs have gone through the floor. So I mean, literally through the floor. <laughs> uh, that's the only place we need them now. Yeah. Down to the to the basement, which is the one place the giraffes won't go. No, which is why we're bringing these moles. Right. I mean, the moles. <laughs> Weirdly enough, unionised and hard to work with, but they are. They're uh, you know they got organised early. Right. Well, this is the thing about the moles. No one was paying attention. <laughs> you know. I mean, that's the problem we have with ants, obviously, as well. I think. That, I mean, I guess we we should have known we could have never trusted the moles. I mean, the the very fact that the. <laughs> I mean, the word for spy. Yeah. Is you let mole. a mole in your business. Right. I mean. <laughs> I mean, that, they did that thing of like, you know, using the fact that their name was a mole as a cover because no one would believe it. No one believe That's a mole good. is a mole. Yeah, exactly. It's too obvious. <laughs> right. Then you think moles are pretty obvious creatures. Well, I mean, it, as it turns out, they are. Yeah. But I meant there was a period of time was where a, people... It was short-sighted of us. I guess, and them. And them. That's <laughs> the ultimate irony or coincidence <laughs> or... <laughs> Yeah, so that. <laughs> and scene. And scene. And that's what normally when we'd say to the stenographer, how did we get onto that? Yeah. <laughs> and by the way, and scene, I think, is a typical deconstructing, under, undercutting. Oh, yeah, it's a good point. See, we just did a bit there, uh, yeah. a little bit. A little bit of meta. A little bit of bit for you. That's what you get, guys. <laughs> you get like both a discussion on it and then a practical demonstration <laughs> that highlights both the ironies and the, yeah. you know, the rights that we were expressing in the former conversation. Welcome to MBR. <laughs> so that is, that's some of what I think is going on with comedy. Uh-huh. Then there's that there, internet. That's made a difference. Uh, I mean, it's made a massive difference. I mean, even like for something like this. I mean, I I experienced it in Australia. I mean, well, I didn't uh, like uh, directly experience it necessarily, but I would see on my timeline every night people tweet, uh, you know, hey, I've just gone and seen Jen Kirkman because I heard her on Fofop or I've just gone and seen Dave Anthony or Gareth Reynolds or whatever. And then you would not only get to see like them saying, hey, I'm going to go and see it tonight because of this, but afterwards, you know, tweeting about, oh, you know, how much they loved it and it was great. so great that they'd heard about them on the... Like, so you actually see the direct effects of it. It's fantastic. Which is, you know, amazing. Uh, yeah, I mean, like, still come to my shows, guys, though. Like, yeah. I mean, let's let's not forget I who. see you as more of a curator than right. a comedian these days. <laughs> yeah, I like his taste in comedy, except for his own comedy. Yeah. He has, he's excellent at observing other people. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but that happens, right? That is one of those um, things where some people's capacity, like, I mean, one of the guys I started comedy with uh, was a guy called Jed Wood, who uh, used to run a gig in... I know Jed. Oh, oh, do you? I didn't know he used to do stand-up as well. Yeah. So Jed uh, used to run a gig in Melbourne called uh, Elbow Grease. Uh-huh. And uh, it was a new comedy room that he curated, you know, and he ran, but he also performed on. Right. And uh, he uh, put myself, or when we were starting out, you know, young comics, myself, Rove, Dave Hughes. Now, this was like people would be on every week. Kring uh, Grant, Peter Hallier, Tripod, American Russo, 
uh, and, I'm, and I'm probably missing some people, you know yeah. what I mean? Like Adam Richard, Joe Stanley, like all people who've gone on to have like really kind of big careers. And this was like the same crew that were yeah. there every week and they were all kind of hand chosen out of the scene by him to do this gig. And it was like definitely the most influential thing any of us ever did because there was a real, like everyone was doing new material every week. So like, you know, if Hughes went and did spurring everyone on. Yeah, exactly. And people were doing things together and you were trying new things and, and it was a great room. It was one of those ones that had that vibe where, you know, it was starting to get really good crowds and, you know, it was on a Sunday night. We'd go out and, you know, party afterwards because we were young comedians with nothing else to do. Yep. And like, you know, so it was that, that thing. But he did stand up at the time. And, you know, he just wasn't – like he knew great comedy. He obviously had a good taste in comedy. But he was just never yeah. – like, you know. But he used to have this joke and it would go for ages. And I used to love this joke so much. It would make me laugh so much. And it was about, uh, I'll do the abbreviated version, and I don't mean to disrespect his great joke, but um, it, it talked about how he was so poor when they were growing up uh, that uh, they had to uh, live in the sewers for a while. And uh, when they were living in the sewers, um, basically they had to survive on anything they could find in the sewers. And uh, basically that meant that they just had to live on, you know, rats and stuff like that. But his mum got pretty good at, you know, preparing them and you know uh, his favorite one was like when she did them like a baked potato actually now that i am telling this i'm telling it better than he told it <laughs> i'm giving it some context that might actually make this joke work but no not really so anyway um he talks about that how he liked it like a baked potato and but then there was one period of time where he got that like every night in a row and he got home from school and he's like mum what's for dinner and she's like the same as last night and he said rats foiled again oh my god <laughs> Like that. <laughs> that joke would make me and only me like laugh every time he did it. Like the journey, the fact that like if you were thinking about the joke, like he did n nowhere near enough work to disguise where it was going if you were thinking about it in any way. <laughs> Like, it was the best. But he had wonderful taste in comedy and has gone on to be very successful. Like, well, you know, he used to work at the Gilly Balloon. I don't know if he still does. Oh, of course. Okay, so that makes so sense. So I know him. He used, to, he used to run late in life. Yeah, so he's, I mean, he's had a great life and I believe he's like, you know, he's got some kids and stuff now as well. Yeah, well, um, <clears throat> David Tyler, who produced Bigopedia uh -huh. and like radio, radio and TV producer of many years, and he's produced loads of things over the years. Like he produced a lot of stuff for Armando Iannucci and Steve Coogan. Uh, he produced Spitting Image for a while, and he started off as a writer and performer. And I've I've talked to him about this before, and he's like, "Yeah, if it, he's he he'll freely say, yeah, I if I thought I'd be a great performer, I would have performed. If I thought I'd be a great writer, I write. What I'm really good at doing is producing, and he is. He's a great producer. He's really good at putting things together, and he's also really good at making at questioning every line that you put into a script, and really." Like, he's great at going, like, no, you need to do more. You need to do more work on this scene. You need to give more information or you need to do less here. Like, he's really great at knowing when to, when to cut, when to expand, when, when to add something to make it make sense, and when to force you to write the better version of a specific idea. And he's, he's great at it. Right, and, and people he, need those people. Great. Yeah, he's so good at it, and he knows that's his strength, and he, doesn't, and he plays to that strength, and he's a joy to work with. 
Right. I mean, that's that's been part of... Uh, there's this guy, John Casimer, who's been the producer of my television show, but also essentially, you know, we write the show together. And, you know, but essentially what that means is, like, I will, you know come up with a lot of ideas or questions or jokes or things that I want to like say, but he writes it all down and puts it into a script and makes yep. it a, you know, a through line that I can then, you know, host the show and improvise through and all those, it makes all that make sense in a way that I don't have the capacity to, to do. Yeah. And he's now got a promotion to head of entertainment at my network. And now we're going to have to do that without him. And like part of the reason I didn't want to go back and do the show is like, I don't know if I fucking can like, you know what I mean? Like you need, that you need bit another of him. what he does. Yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, is so because like I can still have all those same ideas, but I like I have a hundred ideas. I don't know which ones are good. Yep. I just say them all out loud. And then he goes, Yep, this one, this one, this one, that one. And that's what the show is. And it should go in this order. Right. And, and it all makes sense. And we and we need another thing just to bridge these two concepts here. Right. Yeah, sometimes there's been there were a couple of times when we were writing Bigopedia where Dave sat down <clears throat> Sorry, where Dave sat down at the computer is like yeah, uh, you need something here. And then he'd actually just start writing something. You're like, this is what's in the script. You better write a better version of it. Otherwise, someone's going to have to say this out loud. Right. And, that and, makes it, and sense. you just go, okay. And then you write the better version of it. Yeah, you need. And also, I mean, I, this is a topic that's come up quite a lot. But um, uh, directors, when they suddenly get to the point where nobody's editing their stuff and nobody's giving right. them notes and nobody's giving them feedback. Now, I'm not saying that all feedback's good, by the way, but there is a point that somebody gets to when nobody's telling them anything. Yeah. It rarely makes them better. Like, uh, mostly it means that people just make, you know, like Judd Apatow, like the minute he got big enough to be Judd Apatow, all his movies got terrible. And I reckon there's still good movies in all those movies if you cut out about 40 minutes of every single one of those movies. I think, I think it's the sixth Harry Potter book could lose about 150 pages the, and be a five times better book. Right. Like it just, there's 150 pages in there that just don't need to be there. Sometimes less is more. But... But by that point, I don't know, like, you need an editor to be able to go, like, no, we're going to... Right. And at that point, how the f- who, who are you to tell her anything? Yeah. <laughs> that just dug your tiny publishing company out of obscurity and now made it into a powerhouse. Your industry? Yeah. Like, the very industry. Like, before Harry Potter... Like, there was a point. Like, I'm not saying that books would have gone forever. Adults still need books and people are always going to write books and we're going to assess books in different ways. But there was a point in time with the rise of technology and the accessibility of technology, portable technology in particular for children, where books could have just fucked off for kids. I mean, I know they would have had to read them for school. Yeah, I think something, blah, blah, blah. Would have, something would have come by. But definitely, like, it was such a, like, such a wave of... I'm trying to think of the right word, but yeah, it was. But, it, but you know, like it was every, a everything that's inspired and every other like knockoff thing and every. But the fact that kids like to read and want to read other things, yeah, like a lot of that's her. So who the fuck are you, Cause some you, editor we, at you know her publishing company, going, "Hey, Mrs. Magic, yeah, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't reckon we need so much about Ron <laughs> or uh, whatever." Yeah, um, yeah, I, I agree with you, and it's just, were you, were you a secret reader? Like I was. I was definitely the kid who, like, I'd hide under the covers with a book with a torch. Uh, I didn't even, like, here's the interesting thing from my memories of growing up. We were always encouraged, like, I liked to read a lot. I mean, farm kid, you know, you're by yourself heaps and, like, yeah, you kind of have to just pass your time and your imagination, you know. But I enjoyed reading a lot and uh, I never kind of feel like there was ever a moment of pushback. 
Like I even feel like my parents kind of were like, oh yeah, we know you're going to bed and reading until like midnight or whatever, but we'd prefer you doing that than yeah. you know, whatever else you, you could be doing. You know what I mean? Like it was like, you know, if you want to, you know, be really into something, yeah. reading books alone in your bed, <laughs> we're fine with that. We're that, worried about Will. Yeah. Keeps reading. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so no, I liked, um, well, what did I like? Let's talk about this. This is a fun area. Uh, when I was growing up, my favorite books uh, that I can, re- well, my, so Magic Faraway Tree, all that stuff. Did you ever read the Magic Faraway Tree books? I don't books? know. I don't know if I did. Moonface and... Nope. Okay. No, never read that one. Uh, so the Magic Faraway Tree, it was Enid Blyton, I guess. Okay. Um, I had other, I had a lot of the other Enid Blytons, like the Famous Five and Secret Seven. And- so I... Here's what I I liked the I had this weird thing with the Famous Five and Secret Seven that you know like sometimes you like a you know like during grunge it'd be like well yeah but Mud Honey is the real good one right <laughs> mine was uh, Alfred Hitchcock and the Three Investigators I love those books do you remember was those? that Nina Blyton one no it was like a okay they were like murder mysteries it was like a, it was like Law and Order essentially but for, if for Law kids. and Order was for kids like it was three kids who had the, the genius one the one who solved all the mysteries right like was uh, called Jupiter Jones and Never I can't remember had what book. the other two were called but basically he was like the you know he was like on a Monday TV show he'd be your house or your monk or your right, yeah. whatever like he's your enigmatic you know genius he's got the other two guys who kind of who are his mates and they solve all, and they were introduced by Alfred Hitchcock so I don't know if they really were or not but <laughs> the premise was that oh, you know what I'm going to fucking look this up on my computer the, clean, the cleaner's going to come in a minute so here's what I'm going to do I'm going to pause and hopefully the cleaner will just buzz in while this pause is on and by the time we come back I'll, I'll find out more about Alfred Hitchcock and the three investigators okay so that break was a little bigger than we were expecting uh, there's actually been a meal break it was a full hearty meal yeah we've had, uh, yeah, we've had a, this is like a progressive podcast there's like, you know, each uh, segment of the podcast is uh, matched to a different course of the meal you should be eating through <laughs> the podcast. So uh, make sure, I mean, the menu should be, you should have received the menu items when you downloaded the podcast. Make sure you're following along accurately. Right. Basically, we put out on the website a week before the podcast comes up a list of ingredients and uh, <laughs> you can order them directly from the podcast. We found out how to make money from podcasting. <laughs> And it turns out that, uh, look, I was watching the Food Network one day yep. and I just had an idea. I said, what if we can get this, this involved in podcasting? And also I've been uh, watching a lot of home decor programs right now and you should currently have your apartment kitted out to look exactly like the place we're currently recording. So if you don't, uh, pause right now and download the decorating information from our website... How's this for a show? Now, I know that this is going a step further, but like, you know, we've been looking at a way to try to get, and when I say we, I mean the people behind Setlist, mm-hmm. but we just do that show a lot. But they've been looking at a way to like really take that to TV. It's had some TV exposure you know, around the world. Um, but, you know, it hasn't really you know, had that big opportunity to break through. Yeah. But you know what are big? Like, I mean, the equivalent of Setlist to a chef is you know, your mystery box on your Master Chef or your like, yeah. you know, your ingredients you didn't know you were going to have to cook with. Right. So can we not combine the two shows? So there's a mis- so we're going to have a chef paired up with a comedian. Yeah. And the comic has to do stand up about the stuff in the mystery box. No, I think that the, the I think that the, it's like set list, like so basically the comedian gets the topics mm-hmm. and then the the chef gets the ingredients and they have to use those topics. The comedian use has to use the topics to create comedy and the chef has to use the ingredients to create a meal. But the topics in the comedy. 
inspired by the comedy. Inspired by the comedy. So is it a two-way process? Is the is the food going to have to be inspired by the comedy and the comedy inspired by the food? Or is the comic just going balls ahead and not looking to the right at the kitchen? Correct. Yeah. Okay. No, they the, the, the chefs are like, you know, like whatever he's improvising or she is improvising, mm-hmm. uh, the chefs are like reacting to that, you know, okay. the, the ingredients to give like, you know, the food a story, the story behind the food, behind the meal that they will then prepare. Now, I've done set list a lot and I think the chef after a while is going to struggle to have a new modern cooking take on wanking. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, I mean, no, I mean, that's your easiest one. Oh, yeah. Wanking, oh, I mean, like any sauce. Any sauce. Any jus, <laughs> any foam. Like, I mean, you can do foam. it. Like, you can do well, a, a dry What have you been up. doing? I mean, well, if, you, if you've been, like, I mean, it's been a long day. <laughs> <laughs> Been a long month. Couple, Have you been on an oil rig? A couple, <laughs> a couple of those, a couple of those like disposable aspirins because I had a hangover. And they shouldn't be going through you like that, Will. I shelved a couple of Alka Seltzers and <laughs> foam came out my cock. It's a lesson to the kids. And that lesson is don't look at Will's cock on a Sunday morning. Well, I mean, yeah, okay, maybe not foam. I was thinking more a deconstruction. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Your um, emotions separated. Okay, let me have a look at this. Uh, the Three Investigators. The Three Investigators is an American juvenile detective book series, mm-hmm. first published as Alfred Hitchcock and the Three Investigators. It was created by Robert Arthur Jr., who believed using a famous person such as movie director Hitchcock would create, would attract attention. Mm. I mean, that is a good idea. Maybe yeah. we should be doing that with this podcast. Can you just do that? Like Christopher Nolan's James and the Giant Peach? <laughs> no, I mean literally like, you know, oh, I'm like, like Steven Spielberg's Tofop. Yeah. I mean, because it doesn't seem like Alfred Hitchcock had anything to do. Like they were just like, or maybe I should be like Jerry Seinfeld Presents yes. Fofop. Yes. No, I like the idea of something that's unconnected. Oh, okay. Like, you know, uh, Tom Brady Presents yes. Fofop. <laughs> Akira Kurosawa Presents. <laughs> Brought to you by the United <laughs> Nations Foreign Affairs Department. Tofop. <laughs> what? Okay. Uh, they had a budget and we were on it. Okay, let's uh, find out what happened here. Uh, so he's decided to cash in on uh, Hitchcock's name and uh, Random House. Uh, okay, blah, 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 blah. Most of the mysteries involved investigations of baffling phenomena, e.g., an ancient Egyptian mummy that apparently whispered and a human skull that seemed to talk. Now, in the book, and I, don't, I obviously don't want to go too spoilery, but did these phenomena turn out to have a non-supernatural cause? Or was, were there supernatural elements creeping into the book? Well, my memory, and let's, I mean, this may correct my memory, this Wikipedia, but like my memory is, no. I, my memory is that like it was grounded in the natural world. It wasn't right. like a Junior X-Files. It wasn't like Jupiter Jones at all times was like, boys, remember the truth is out there. It's so like, I kind of like that. So like all the town are scared of this mummy that's whispering yeah. and then the super genius kid goes, actually, it's because of the way uh, this thing expands during the heat of the day. and Right. Essentially, he was a young Neil deGrasse Tyson. Right. Yeah. He was just explaining things with facts. Yeah. Yeah. He was Sherlock Holmes, essentially. He was a teenage Sherlock Holmes, right? Uh, Let's have a look at the, if we can find the the plot of the series here. The original series was uh, published from 64 to 87. Oh, there you go. Comprised 43 books. Uh, Books 1 to 9 and 11 were written by the creator, Robert Arthur. Okay. Uh, I don't want to know about the other authors. Don't really care. Uh... 
For the original series, the specific ages of the investigators were never revealed, but contextual information indicates they were likely 13 or 14 years old. So perfect, like... So good investigating age. And say I'm probably like 10, 11, 12 when I'm reading these books. So, like, you can really aspire to be like, you know what, in a few more years, Got if I work th- hard, I can be solving mysteries. Yeah, like, right now, I'm, I'm very, very light on the mystery solving. But... I mean... If I work hard... Give it another year and a half. If I get my 10,000 hours of mystery solving up... <laughs> and if I read all of these books... Right. Uh, okay, so... Uh, for the original series, the specific ages... <laughs> speaking of that, it's such a weird thing. It's like, I was having this weird debate with myself yesterday. Maybe I'm spending too much time home alone. But I watch a lot of cop shows and shows that are about cops and crimes. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, like dramas or real life? Cops? No, no, uh, like dramas, okay. like uh, Law and Order, or Got like it. you know Blue Bloods, or anything that has a cop. Like most shows, ninety-five yeah. percent of shows, things with cops in them. Right, right. And so I watch a lot of those shows. The good thing about TV as well is often even shows that aren't explicitly about cops might have a cop that's at least in the background. Of oh, mate, like it's hard to like. I mean, people. The first question any Hollywood executive asks you is. Is there some way we can get one more cop in this? Yeah. <laughs> Even if the movie has no cops in it. Well, it just goes to show how much Hollywood is controlled by the police. I mean, <laughs> the powerful cop union. Yeah. I mean, Those, this is this is the secret of Hollywood that no one will ever reveal to you. Police running the place. The police run the place. It's cop town. Yeah. That's what people say. Because obviously, you know, they'll burst into the writers' rooms. Yeah. And again, I, I hope I'm not going to get in trouble for this, but. Well, I mean, you are, but. Yeah. Well, this is. Hopefully no one listens to the show, but people, you know, I've, I've been in a writer's room and friends of mine are, you know, professional TV writers and everything. And, you know, you'll be in the room and then every so often a cop will just come in and, you know, twirling their bat on. Yeah. Just go, yeah, nice bit of writing you got here. Shame if anything were to happen to it. Right. A lot of regulations might not being upheld. Well, I mean, a lot of people don't know this, but the reason the final episode of Seinfeld was such a mess right. is just before the final episode, the cops were like, well, this is our you know, big chance to get more cops into this like episode. Yeah, right? has how much crime is in the last episode, yeah. you might ask. And they, they, don't express, they don't expressly say put more cops in it, obviously. No. They'll just be like, yeah, what, uh, what's the arrest count in this episode? How many... Uh, any handcuffs going on? Right. That's literally why they had to have that ludicrous plot line about yeah. them all getting arrested and ending up in prison. Crazy. Like, Jerry Seinfeld didn't want it. No. Who, of course not. I mean, that is a stupid way to end one of the greatest shows of all time. But, but you the, have to the do that. the powerful cop union, you had to do it. Otherwise, it might have happened for real. Right. He went, like, they probably went into the room, like, here's an idea for yep. you. Uh, you and your friends get arrested. Now, do you want that to happen... In real life? Or in that little scripty thing you're writing? <laughs> I'll tell you what a show about nothing is. Life in a prison, sir. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, man, it's like... I mean, Beverly Hills Cop, that whole franchise was originally going to be... Uh, Beverly, Beverly Hills, Hills Fun. Yeah. No, Beverly Hills Vet. Oh! It was about a vet. I didn't know that. The whole thing originally was about a vet. Really? Who came to Beverly Hills. Yeah. Right. And, but yeah, the cop union got involved. Uh, I mean, we never got to see the, 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 the series that Steve Gutenberg signed up for, Dance Academy. <laughs> Just because, again, of the powerful police union getting involved. It's, God damn it. I mean, it's been, it's through the whole history of, of cinema, to be honest with you. Yeah. Of course, the film And a Gentleman. <laughs> <laughs> they got away with making that more about the army, but 
the implication was there. Right. I mean, it's still about, you know, authoritarian power. That's the thing. They Like, I mean, yeah. yeah. World cops. That's how they, that's how they sold it. They're like, what if the army is like a, like a policeman of the world? Uh, Top Gun, policeman of the sky. Oh, that's, yeah, that was, yeah, that's how that they was sold a that big one. moment for those guys. <laughs> Uh, Copland was uh, originally, actually, weirdly enough, called Table Tennis Land. Huh. And that entire movie, uh, yeah, Sylvester Stallone was going to play a champion uh, table tennis. It was kind of like a Rocky with table tennis. I but, never knew that. Yeah, and then the, but that makes so much sense it now. Makes when you a sp- lot more sense, doesn't yeah. it? When you think about it. <laughs> <laughs> really? <laughs> All right. Um, so, Alfred Hitchcock, three investigators. Yeah. Uh, uh, so, they're 13 or 14 years old. Um, the investigators were typically introduced to a mystery by a client or finding something unusual accidentally in the scrapyard of Jupiter's uncle, Titus Jones, Hmm. and Aunt Matilda, who had a salvage business. So basically, essentially, they've they've set up like a teenage detective business and they either get clients or they just find some stuff in the trash, (laughs) I guess. Uh, the boys encountered baffling, sometimes misleading clues and danger before finally solving the mystery. See, here's the thing. Um, when I was about, I'm going to say probably seven or eight, uh, me and my friends were spies. Oh, yeah. And, you know, we had a club and we had codes, a code book and everything. Uh-huh. But what we didn't really have was any clients. Right. And I think that's where fiction probably takes a little bit of a step up from reality. Right. Is like, you know, we were we were very effective spies, but with nothing to do really. Right. Like if, if it came down to it, if we actually had a case, like we could communicate with each other in an indetectable way. Like there's but no you just, but you just never had a case. We had we never had a case. We but had a did clubhouse. Anyone ever, did anyone ever drop out or people believe that one day there would be a case or Well I think I think that's the trouble. After a while, after too many years passed with yeah. no real no, case. no cases. Yeah. Uh, you sort of disbanded. You're like, well, we should probably do other stuff in the me. I don't think there was ever like a formal disbandment of us. Is, is there a chance that you're still involved in this secret organization? Well, I, I'd I'd say, like, was, if was it there came ever like it, a formal? I bet there was a formal commitment ceremony, right? Yeah, in the first but there was place. never formal disbanding. No. So technically, I am still a still spy. signed up. Yeah, yeah. It's probably why your credit rating is no good. <laughs> yeah, you haven't been paying your fees to your, <laughs> to your secret organization. But if if necessary, I think I could. I think we could pick up where we left off fairly effectively. I mean, you know, they've all gone to what they're all doing other things. You know, I'm a comic and I live in America and, you know, one of them's a doctor and uh, another one works in IT. But okay, here's a fun Adam Sandler movie, (laughs) which is a sentence you don't hear a lot. Uh, Here's a a fun Adam Sandler movie. uh, Well, two things about Adam Sandler. Firstly, have you seen the preview for his new movie, Pixels? I have not. Uh, Basically, it's like somebody went, what if we made a combination of that movie, The Last Starfighter, and that movie, Wreck-It Ralph? And people were like, that's a terrible idea. And they went, Adam Sandler says he'll be in it. And they went, here's some money. Okay. So I'll go and see it. It looks kind of fun. Uh, I'll watch it on a plane. But this is my, this is, this, this would be a great Adam Sandler movie like you could write this script up and really get like because you know what he likes to do he's and he said it publicly he just likes to make movies with his friends and yeah. like go to fun places or whatever every right? every film is set in a different location it's just where they want to hang out for a month or two right so here's the what you need for an Adam Sandler film right you want like uh, him and a bunch of his friends and you want an exotic location yeah right okay so here's what you do uh, it's kind of like grown-ups but grown-ups but better 
right? So don't pitch it that way to him in the room. <laughs> <laughs> but here's the movie: group of kids yep. who are in a little spy club together, uh-huh. like group of childhood friends who are in a little spy club together. You see them having all, you know, coming up with these secret languages and ways to get out of you know misadventures. So it's essentially it's like Home Alone. Home Alone meets um, uh, Grown Ups is essentially yeah. what this movie is, right? So. They have a reunion. It's on some whatever destination Adam Sandler wants to go to. We can write the comedy around wherever it wants to be. But they all go on this reunion together and then something happens and they are all forced to use those, you know, childhood skills to like, you know, thwart the, you know, the danger. Yeah, they stumble across a real... Was it was it that conspiracy theory? Is that, that the Mel Gibson film where it turns out like he's a conspiracy theorist but stumbles across a real Real, conspiracy? Yeah, right. You know, they're adults playing as kids, playing as spies. But it brings they... them, but it brings them back together as adults because they've drifted apart. And by doing this thing that they did as children, but also solving this crime together, great, it's done. That's a movie. That's an Adam Sandler movie. That, that's right. the thing that we'll never write. You're, you're welcome, Hollywood. No, I've I've got a new policy now. I just come up with the ideas, and if people like any of these ideas, I just want to be, you know producer credit or original idea by or inspired by an idea heard on or whatever. Like that's fine. Because right. I am not going to get to that. Yeah. So if Adam wants that idea, I mean, you know what? If it does really well, I wouldn't mind, you know, being one of those guys that rocks home to his house like Chris Rock and all those guys do and there's like a $100,000 Maserati in you. Like, yeah. I wouldn't mind that as if it works out. Even, do you ever do a bit of acting? No, I don't really want to. I okay. just want the Maserati. Okay. I don't even want to cut at the stop. If you think this is a good idea, and I'll give you some other ideas for it if you want. I can't, I can't work on it full time. Like I've got <laughs> other shit that I want to do. But if you want it, Adam Sandler, if you're listening or whoever Adam Sandler's people are, um, if you want this idea and you want me to put it together for you and you guys then just put it together, I don't want any cut. I don't want to cut of the profits. All I want is if it works out well for you, you can reward me like, you know, in the way that you reward people who have done nice things for you. Right. That's all. That's, I'm happy with that. That's my agreement. <laughs> That seems fair, Adam, right? Adam? 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 <laughs> Hello? Uh, all right, let's find out more about the, the three investigators. Um, all right. Uh, the investigators were typically introduced to a mystery by a client. Yeah, blah, blah, blah. Uh, it is... Okay, the, the series had one major theme. However strange, mystical, or even supernatural a particular phenomenon might seem at first, it is capable of being traced to human agency with the determined application of reason and logic. I like that. Yeah. Now, I wonder now, because I think that's a... I think you're you're an empiricist at heart. I'm wondering if that, in your formative years, sowed the seed for the way you now think about the world. I wonder if that had a hand in it. I mean, I guess it probably it probably has. Like, you know, my favorite book when I was a child in my most formative years, although my other favorite book was um, uh, the, you know, the Narnia series. I love the Narnia series. Which, and by the at w- the end when they were like, ah, surprise, Aslan is Jesus. Like, oh, God, that did, like, didn't I, that, bother you? That, well, no, but it hasn't made me into a person who's like, oh, my God, That's I still true. love Jesus because of Aslan. There was definitely a point for me with Narnia where, because I, I loved those books as yeah. well as a kid. Well, actually, you know what? I loved the first few, and then I got stuck on about book three and a half or four and a half. There was a point where I got stuck, and then I came back to it a year and a half later when I was a little bit older and had a bit more patience, and then I plowed through the rest of the series. But there was definitely a point when I was a little bit earlier, sorry, a little bit older, 
and suddenly realized it was all about Jesus. Where I was like, oh, really? Right. Oh, come on. Like He was like the original M. Night Shyamalan. Yeah, but with a shitty twist. Like, ha-ha, got you to think about God. Right, but it didn't make me love God. No. I still loved Aslan. Still love lions. Yeah, still love lions. Still worship lions. Still fine with lions. <laughs> still happy to go to the zoo. Yeah. Can't get me near a church, though. Take that, C.S. Lewis. <laughs> <You're> wearing... <laughs> In fact, right now, I hadn't noticed, but you're actually wearing a little... Is that a little pendant? Is that, is that a lion nail to a crucifix? It is. <laughs> yeah. I wondered why you had that, but that makes a lot more sense. Well, they always talk about the lamb and the lion, and I concentrate on the lion. <laughs> right. Yeah, and there's only one rule to my religion. No lion. <laughs> always tell the truth. That's what we do. We, we watch The Lion King. Our hymns are all the, from the soundtrack of The Lion King. <laughs> it's actually a really fun church. With, with May, with the odd exception, May for The Lion Sleeps Tonight. Oh, you know, we do. A, uh, we love a whim away. Yeah. Oh, we <laughs> love a whim away. But that's for your nighttime services. Yeah. Sometimes I'll get them all to do a will away, but that's just, uh, uh, it's a bit arrogant. <laughs> Dan Antopolsky in Edinburgh about five years ago, his Edinburgh Festival show was called A Whim Away. And it took me about three weeks into the festival before I got it. <laughs> like, it's one of those ones where, you, where like, for the... I was like, oh, yeah, that's an interesting title. And then I said it out loud at one point. I was like, oh, oh. <laughs> that makes a lot more sense. Okay. Uh, let's... Uh, okay, so rational explanation. They're, essentially, they're teen scientists, which is nice. Uh, most mysteries were solved by Jupiter Jones. So, Jupiter's your star. He's your Sherlock, right? Okay. Okay. He's your trump card. Uh, Murder's mysteries were solved by Jupiter Jones, a supreme logician who implicitly used the Occam's razor principle. Now, uh, that the simplest and most rational explanation should be preferred to an explanation which requires additional assumptions. Yep. Right. These are deep themes. Oh. Yeah, so the, uh, Occam's razor is the, the principle that the simplest and most rational explanation should be preferred to an explanation which requires additional assumptions. Right. Which I, definitely is very reflective of the way that I think. This is actually, you've quite challenged me a little bit on that. Like we had a little pause so you could have a bathroom break. And while we, I was out on the balcony, I was really like thinking on that point because I try to think a lot about, you know, where my assumptions about, okay, I'll break this down. I'll try to break this down quickly. But here's my kind of idea that I'm thinking about at the moment: is that the best way to approach our lives for uh, the sake of both ourselves, but I think more broadly our humanity, our Earth, mm-hmm. our population, whatever it is that brought us here in the first place, um, is to realize that we are not the end point or peak of what we are, but we are but a step in us learning, you know, what it is that we need to learn or like if there is an answer to why we are here, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that will be definitive and, you know, to a point where everybody will accept that is the answer and understand why that is the answer, if even such a thing exists. Yeah. Because some people will explain that by religion. Some people explain that by like, well, here's our best theory from science or something. It depends people- almost what you mean by why. Well, also that, right? But, you know, the why that explains for people that, that say there is 
a, a, you know, that we are part of a grander design or we're part of a quantum universe where blah, 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 or where yeah, we, we are a random accident in the corner of the universe that was yeah, caused by this, 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 and this mm-hmm. to a definitive point where people go, oh, oh, oh my God, we discovered actually we were completely wrong. There is a God and all those things that you have been saying have been manifests of these things. That Whatever the fuck that is, we are so far from a point in our evolution as a human species that we will come to one definitive answer about that yeah it will not happen in our lifetimes so we should waste less we should waste less time arguing about things that we will never be able to comprehend and we should spend more time trying to be part of the ongoing process of evolution and humanity and trying to do things better and better and hope that like each generation will learn more and do more and innovate more and you know go closer to that answer now my my only issue with that is i've been working a lot in my lab and i think i'm close so i look <laughs> i am happy to be wrong yeah. with all my theories like this i'm happy to be wrong but it challenged me a little bit about like about thinking which was that i think about that because my thought process is that my best guess uh-huh. is the that i would lean towards you know that the scientific explanation and while we don't have a full um you know explanation point by point there's some pretty you know reasonable guesses of why that might have happened yeah but that's the perspective i'm basing all that on i'm basically that perspective i've just articulated is me going with the assumption that all the religious people are wrong which and that like you know and and then how do we go but it's uh But you're, hang on, so you're saying. But, well, I mean, isn't my, like, I mean, that's from my perspective of the way that I think about the world, but not everybody thinks about the world like that. That's what I'm saying. You're saying that the drive to chase, like, an endpoint of we will find out why we're all here is holding us back from just generally investigating. Right. I think that in our efforts to, like, it's like one of those things where you go, if you do all these steps, we may get to a point where we understand, you know, like, I think that we could all agree. If we just sat everyone down and went, here's all the things that we have in common. Like, all the problems and all the good things and all these things are people just going, we, most people want to know, okay, we've got this life. What are we meant to do with it, mm-hmm. right? And is there an answer? Isn't there an answer? Am I meant to make it up myself? Like, people want a bit more of a sense for that. And that's why they look to all these things, these ex- explanations of what their world are, right. right? So, if we all agree that we'd like to know that, wouldn't it be better if we just kind of went, we'll probably not find it out yet, but if we all band together, we can start looking rather than going, I know what it is. <laughs> I know what it is too. No, you don't know what it is. Let's fight each other because neither of us who know what it is have a different theory about what it, like, I mean, that's the bit that I think is holding us back. That We're spending so much time letting groups that neither of them, we should all acknowledge, know what they're talking about, fight over an answer that neither of them have. You shouldn't trust anyone who thinks they have a definitive answer of it because we don't... Okay, I'll give you a better example. I feel like I'm not quite articulating okay. the thought that... No, I think I'm getting close I'll, to what I'll you give mean. you... Uh, when I watch a time travel movie, as long as the time travel makes sense within the movie, like the world that they've created, yep. like, I don't care. Back to the Future, Hot Tub, Time Machine, like, it's fine. That's their world. They created it. It makes enough sense for the movie to work and that's the whole point. Some people are like, well, time travel in that movie just makes no sense at all. You know what? I don't give a shit. 
because time travel does not exist. And until time travel exists, right. you can have whatever theory. Then you're basically like, uh, like mummies don't chase people like that. Right. Uh, they yeah, actually uh, be slower. Yeah, so. yeah. Zombies don't go quick. Yeah. Well, who fucking knows? Because there's not zombies. And I'm a bit the same with that with religion. You can have your theory about what zombies will be like. Uh-huh. Right? You can be like, hey, of these things that we can't explain about the world, here's our theory. We think the zombies will be slow zombies. And there can be a group of people from the other group who are like, well, no, we think that, like, you know, the zombies, when the zombies come, will be really fast and they will have fangs. Yeah. There'll be another group that'll be like, I think the zombies will actually want to be our friends and we should work together. And, right? But we all acknowledge... That we need that better there, locks on the doors. That there are no zombies, right? <laughs> Let's just all acknowledge that everyone's just guessing there will be zombies. No one has any proof there's going to be zombies. People are just surmising at the moment that one of the possibilities is zombies. And they might be friendly zombies or scary zombies. I don't mind if you want to think that. But we just have to kind of acknowledge that, by the way, there is no proof that there are zombies. Okay. But there are zombies. <laughs> and that's why we will never evolve fully as a humanity. That's why we'll destroy ourselves before we get to the place we're meant to be. Because we're incapable of agreeing. Um, all right. I, I'm remembering one of the books that I liked. And I can't remember how old I was, but I probably relatively young. Uh, and I had to look this up as well when we took that break. Was a series of books by Diane Wynne-Jones. Okay, tell me about this. Kids book. And it was more of a magic one. Uh, it was it was basically a pre-Harry Potter series about young wizards. Okay. And it was The Worlds of Crestomancy. It was a fantasy books by Diana Wynne-Jones. Here we go. And I found it on Wikipedia as well. In the context, published from, 90, uh, from 77 to 2006. Well, I didn't realize you wrote that many. Um, uh, in the context- Maybe she didn't. Maybe she was like Harper Lee. Right. Like one came out every, or like uh, George R. R. Martin. And like people were just like at the end going, write the new one. Uh, obsessed with Game of Thrones. Like every Sunday I'm excited. Every I mean, Stations are looking for other ones. Maybe they could do, what's, what's the name of it again? What was it? It was the Crest, the world of Crestomancy. I wonder whether the they did it. The world of Crestomancy. Yeah. And it was I about. That. Um, yeah. In the context of the parallel universe setting of the book. Crestomancy also referred to the eponymous British government office that is responsible for supervising the use of magic and oh. Crestomancy Castle in southern England, which is both residence and headquarters. Um, and it, yeah, it was basically a school kid, a school kid who decide who finds out, did he find out he was a wizard in it or did he, did it start off with him knowing he was a wizard? Uh, which week I think was the first book of the series. Anyway, it was a it, Charmed Life was the first one. Then the Magicians of Caprona, Witch Week, The Lives of Christopher Chant. Yeah. Um, oh God. Here we go. There are seven Crestomancy books, six novels, and a collection of four stories subtitled Four Tales of Crestomancy. The main setting for the series. So we weren't Crest- actually that far away from her, George R. R. Martin. <laughs> no. Like. <laughs> Two of the novels are set during the childhood and during the adolescence of Christopher Chant. Oh, okay. Um. Yeah, I don't know. I don't remember much second about it. The second one's just a lot of masturbating. Yeah, it's like really graphic. Then the third really, one. Really, really graphic. Third one, he's at college. Yeah. 
And there's more masturbating. There's a lot of masturbating. Yeah, a lot of drugs. Loads more than you'd expect for a kid's series about a boy wizard. Weirdly enough, and this was the funny thing they'd do, they'd often stick a couple of pages together just as an in joke. <laughs> yeah, and like... then after a particularly big masturbating scene. <laughs> it's like a kid's version of Game of Thrones because Game of Thrones <laughs> is full of... <laughs> and they're, they're, like they don't get killed, but they do get like a lot of dead arms. Right. <laughs> <laughs> like Game of Thrones is for like murder and sex, and this is just like, you know, no, hey, you guys noogies and uh, you guys didn't see the Red Dead episode of. <laughs> <laughs> it was lunchtime, and they dead legged everyone. Yeah, they were meant to be just playing a game of kiss chase. Right. They were playing spin the bottle. Surprise is dead legging. <laughs> They were betrayed. The internet exploded. <laughs> <laughs> just, and that's what that's what kills me about this series. Just, just when you get to really like a character, and you're like, okay, this is one of the main characters in the book. Just out of nowhere, they'll get a dead leg. Oh, and they're they're, <laughs> they're out for the rest of the book. You're like, surely, surely they kind of dead legged that character. Like I thought, I that mean, was, that's yeah, that's the one character you can't dead leg. You're like three, two thirds, uh, like a third of the way into the book. You're like, this is the main character, and then right. the rest of the two thirds, he's just walking it off. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, while other people take over the narrative. Oh man. <laughs> 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 oh man um, What are the names of the people who are over the wall? What's their names? The ones that the The wildlings The wildlings I wanted to do some joke about wildlings playing um, You know, <laughs> down ball up against the wall Like, you know, there was some sort of children's game up That you play up well, against the, the wall They're obviously been... the kids from the other From the other the school, school up the road Oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> separated by the wall That's right Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a good idea Game of Thrones for kids <laughs> Um, That's a sketch idea that we won't do. I mean, kids love dragons, right, too? Yeah. Oh, that's pretty good. <laughs> that's a pretty good idea. Um, all right. Uh, I want to f- just find out a little bit more about Three Investigators because now I'm intrigued. I want to know where Alfred Hitchcock was involved because I remember him being in the books, but I can't remember. There's no reference to him here. Uh, just every so often he has weird cameos in the books like he did in his films. Movies, but they're <laughs> silent, so you have to read between the lines. <laughs> it's just a, a balding man that ambled past the outside window. It was just that balding picture of his head that he used in his movies. <laughs> just... It was the original emoji. These books invented emojis. The first emoji ever was Alfred Hitchcock's head. <laughs> it's just, just hidden on a page. Um, or like his, Or like the word... The, the letters of Alfred Hitchcock just appear as an acrostic on one page in the middle of the book. Or oh, weirdly enough, it was actually uh, the word Hitch and then just a picture of a cock. <laughs> that like is it was strange. Hitch. That's how he signed. A lot of people don't know this that about Alfred Hitchcock, <laughs> but he's, that's how he did his signature. Well, it he, makes sense. He used it saves to sign all his merch, like Hitch and then just a picture of a dick and balls. Oh, that makes sense. Because obviously the time you save doing that right. is time you can then spend like writing and directing films. Uh, and some of the greatest films of all time. That's Absolutely. Like, and you've just got to... And but you also, think you know what, to... like to get out the darkness, you know what I mean? Like, cause some of those films are pretty, you know, dark and he yeah. was, you know, he terrorized some of those particularly female actors on set, you know, during yeah. the process. And the only way you can really wipe that slate clean is by drawing an extended set of male genitalia after the first half of your name. Uh, on the, that's how he would sign every script yeah. as he sent them to the <laughs> studio. You can get the original uh, original uh, sh- shooting script of the birds, and it is nothing but cocks. Wow, cocks everywhere! Now I, th- that does ring a vague bell, and um, 
Am I right thinking like when he was particularly excited about a script, he'd make it extra spunky? That that's absolutely true. That is absolutely true. Right. Yeah. So like the the studio would be like, oh, I think we've got a good one here. <laughs> it's dripping right the way down. Like he's continued the drips onto page three. I mean, that's sometimes he put some hair there. Yeah. If he really thought it was like it's veiny. Yeah, the balls. He would often he, sometimes he'd be signed it Hitchcock and balls. <laughs> That, that's when he really nailed it. When he sent in Psycho, he signed it Hitchcock and Balls. Yes. And now, was that also the name of his old variety double act? Oh, uh, yeah. Balls, unfortunately. <laughs> balls, unfortunately, was killed in an accident. It was much like um, uh, Siegfried and Roy. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. In fact, same trick. <laughs> that's why it was so, like, that Siegfried and Roy actually did it as a tribute to Hitchcock and Balls. Well, that does make sense. Yeah. <laughs> Which one died, Siegfried or Roy? Neither of them died. Oh, did not one no, of them No, he survived die? it. He, he was just in hospital for a while. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Okay. Uh, which one? But that, is that why... Was like, it Roy or Siegfried? I think Roy was the one who got attacked. Yeah, right. So it's a very much the same thing. Right. Hitchcock, Balls. Yeah. Balls and Roy should get is together. Is that why the famous average Hitchcock quote, a lion's got my balls? Yeah. Is that where that <laughs> no, came I mean, from? That's, that's where that, <laughs> that makes a lot more sense. I mean... They they did that scene uh, when and when Anthony Hopkins played him in uh, Hitchcock, right? But they cut it out. I think it's in the DVD. Right, extras. Hitchcock saying a lion bit my balls makes a lot more. Yeah, <laughs> I mean we actually used to do that uh, line at my Lion Cult. All right. Yeah, we'd we'd sing uh, the the songs from the Lion King. We'd do the Wim away, Wim away, and then we just do that. And then line. have like someone come on as Hitchcock. As Hitchcock. <laughs> Just, and balls. Hitchcock and balls. Did he start off like side on and then... Like in a, well, in the it would happen every night. Here's the thing. We did the same thing every night, but people fucking loved it so much it didn't matter. You can't At not. the end of like when we were about to like go, you would just... The, the spotlight would come on and you would just see the silhouette <laughs> of his head and the fucking crowd would go wild. They know it's coming. They know it's coming. And then face on down the stairs, bang. I mean, it was... It was a pretty fucking, it was a great, it was a great bit. And all it took was for some forgotten to time sidekick to be horribly mauled by a vicious lion. I mean, back then though, that was not uncommon. No. I mean, lions probably, like I say most people, well, that's why cancer rates were a lot lower in those days. Right. Because of like lions now, killed people because yeah. before they could develop cancer. Exactly. Like nowadays you'd be like, oh, how come like cancer rates have gone through the roof? You go, well, because there aren't as many lions. So people survive to that age. Right, right. That's why they never tell you. They're always like, oh, well, here's how you can prevent cancer. Right. You know, don't go to a solarium. Don't smoke cigarettes. But what they never All tell good you. advice. Right. Oh, no. Absolutely good advice. But what they don't tell you is here's some other ways you can avoid cancer, right? Be more by a lion to death. Yeah. Spend more time in the vicinity of an un- only semi-tame, unhindered wild beast or uh, maybe are we missing an opportunity here should there be like a you know a course you know like when you can do a course in like a you know a short amount of time like you know they kind of really pack it all in so that you can kind of like speed train to acquire a skill yeah of course should there be a course you can do for cancer sufferers who know that they have a terminal illness but have always wanted to train a line yeah, like, you because you're like, line, right? if you get it wrong, what have you lost? Like a week and a half. That's absolutely right. It's the perfect environment, right? You need to, I mean, it's obviously a timing thing because there's a, you know, there's a point as the disease progresses where it's harder and harder to hold the chair. Right. <laughs> that is, I mean, that is a fair point. 
I mean, I guess the return on your investment is not... I just think it would be a nice surprise if someone said you've got six months to live, but on the upside, in two months, you can be a lion tamer. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, I think it is a, it is a forgotten art. It's very much a... It's a skill that isn't nearly as prevalent as it should be. I mean, I'm just thinking now, like, I have a top hat and whip, and I've used neither. Let alone the two in combination. Yeah. They just sit, you know, as decoration. Right, because you don't have a lion. Right. Right? And it's so hard because I live in, you know, central Los Angeles to really get and to keep To have on. a lion? Yeah. I mean, I've got, you know, you've got a, you've got a bigger apartment than I have. Yeah. Um, I mean, I've just really, I've got like basically a studio. Uh-huh. You know, it's got a separate kitchen and stuff, but. Well, couldn't, the li- couldn't you and the lion just have like separate spaces? Yeah, but it gets so pricey. No, but I mean, just in that, like, I mean, you know, like, if if you're in the living room and you need some space, like, can't the lion just be in the kitchen? Yeah, that's true. You know, and then vice versa, if you need to cook or whatever, the lion can have some couch time. Yeah, I think what I'd have to do then is go into either the bathroom or the closet so the lion could go past, because otherwise we right. don't want to have that awkward, There's going like, to be some coordination Yeah, because otherwise right. it's like a sort of corridor that connects the two, and then you have that thing where you go to the right, and then you go to the left, and... You, you're just sort of dancing around the line. It gets, it's just embarrassing. I mean, I've got to be honest with you, probably in those transitional points anyway, it's best to not be in direct contact with the line. I mean, I imagine they're yeah. the points where you're most likely to for something to go wrong. Yeah, probably. Because I'd, I'd say, I don't know for sure, because again, I've not done this, yeah, but I'd say sure. trying to pass a line in a narrow corridor is precarious. Well, that's why you need training, of course. I'm not like I wasn't. Yeah, yeah. I mean, by I mean, the way, yeah. I wasn't. <laughs> like, you're not going to just put a lion straight into your apartment without practicing. No, I mean, and as far as we know, you don't even have cancer. So this is not, this true. program is not even available to you. Right. That's the point. I think I should work out at this point this program because it would have to be heavily subsidised because we're putting a lot of money into training, but then <laughs> we're not necessarily getting long returns in that person's performing career afterwards. You know, what I mean, depending on the. Yeah, know. I mean that's the other problem, obviously. Well, because A, we're rushing them in, let's be honest. We're yeah. rushing them through the program, but that's part of the risk they're taking. You know, you it's know. not as comprehensive. I and mean, they know well, that going in. It's they not, know that going in. There's some risks involved. You're like, we can't obviously do the full three-year course. Right. We'll give you the gist. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like we'll, we'll, we'll skip over the stuff. We'll just assume you know what a chair is, right? You know what a chair is. Because that is actually the first three months at Lion Taming School. You know the five the five line danger zones, which are the mouth and each of the paws. That's oh yeah okay, that's good. Yeah, so that's good. The, the five danger now. points. The five danger points. A lot of people think the tail. No, tail's relatively safe. Is that right? Relatively safe. Yeah. The uh, ass of a lion, also relatively risk free. Right. Like if a lion is presenting its ass to you, you're probably okay. Okay. Unless you refuse, right? <laughs> Well, yeah, I'm assuming you're not rude. I mean, it's a jilted, <laughs> a jilted lion can be hard to deal with. <laughs> all right, I need to find out about these guys. I want to, I want to know what's going on here. Okay. Um, all right, uh, the boys were able to solve their mysteries with relatively few resources. They generally had little more than a telephone, bicycles. Access to a library, because this was before the internet and yeah. smartphones. And also, let's point out, this will be a landline. Oh, yeah. Tel- yeah, not like a mobile. Like yeah. A, tel- yeah, a telephone at their mum's house. Yeah. Uh, 
and a chauffeur-driven vehicle. All right. So yeah. here's the thing. So I'm guessing they're coming from a certain level of wealth. Yeah, I think so. Uh, it's based in Hollywood. Like, it's set in Hollywood because that's okay. where Alfred Hitchcock's there. And also the kid's called Jupiter as well. Yeah, Poor that's kids. a Hollywood name. Yeah. <laughs> the working class kids from the other... The wildling kids aren't called Jupiter. Right, that's a very good point. Um, all right, here we go. Oh, here's Alfred Hitchcock. Good. Um, the last chapter of each book was an epilogue for which the investigators sat with Alfred Hitchcock. <laughs> right. Uh, reviewing the mystery and revealing the deductions through the clues discussed earlier in the books. So ah. they would have a debrief at the end. So that's weird. So the mystery isn't solved until the epilogue. Well, no, I think that they solve the mystery and then like the epilogue is like them, the breakdown. Going, to, them going to Alfred and saying, hey. So, so it's like the what, cliff notes afterwards, like yeah, what we learned. Here's what really happened. <laughs> For anyone who was stupid and didn't realize, here's what happened. I actually would, you know what? I wouldn't mind a few movies like that. Yep. You know, like I wouldn't mind it if like after the credits, like you didn't have, to, you wouldn't have to watch them. There's right? been a few movies where I, I will, in fact, even a few Game of Thrones episodes where sometimes I'll read the Wikipedia summary of what happened in that episode just so I make sure I didn't miss a key point. I got to be honest with you. If there was an option at the end of say Donnie Darko, right? Yeah. Where they said like, leave now, that's the end of the movie or stick around till the end of the credits and they will explain to you what the fuck just went on. <laughs> I would have stayed. <laughs> Where the director's just sat in a chair explaining it. Right. I would love that. That's a good feature. People should do that. There you go, Hollywood. Um, but you're just giving ideas away, left, right, and center. Mate, I'm an ideas factory and it is open for business. Um, I want to find out more about these characters. Hang on. Uh, here we go. Uh, Jupiter Jupe Jones, first investigator. A former child actor. There you go. Look at this. this All right. Is, Okay, so his parents are in show... They forced him into show business as a kid, so... And he's too smart for that. He's too smart just to be acting. Exactly. He a wants to be behind the scenes. He wants to be the puppet master, not the puppet. A former child actor named Baby Fatso. <laughs> that was his name, Baby Fatso. Oh my God, Baby Fatso grew up to be Jupiter? Yep. Wow. Although he hates it when people mention this. Don't mention it to Jupiter. Don't mention his early work as Baby Fatso. He's trying to leave that behind. Right. He's solving mysteries now. He's yeah, like, man, stop bringing up my acting. I'm solving mysteries. Doesn't think you dress up, you, you you know, you dress up as a baby and you put on weight and you get typecast for life. That's right. what Hollywood does to you. Uh, he's like, oh, what, what? Shalice, Shalice Theron can do exactly the same thing for Monster, and she wins an Academy Award. Yeah, but baby fatso. <laughs> yes. uh, all right, here we go. Uh, Jupiter is intelligent. And stocky, still, still got some of the baby fat so weight on, and has a remark, which is also why I responded to him because I was also a like a large kid, okay, and has a remarkable memory and deductive skills. This feels a bit like you ever when you reading a book or even like a short story, and it particularly works if you ever read fan fiction, and you realise it starts to tell you a lot more about the person who wrote it than they may be intended. Oh, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> Um, like a lot of people thought he was stupid but actually he wasn't stupid at all he was actually probably too clever for everyone and that's why they didn't like him <laughs> I, I like watching uh, I have a little bit of a theory about comedy which I may have discussed with you before which is that I think that we start in many ways with what is our legitimate voice 
even if it's not the jokes we're telling. But because we don't know how to hide or create an aura of who we are or what we represent or, or those sort of things at that stage. Often when, often when you watch people in their first couple of gigs, they work really well. You know how people can have really good gigs even though the material is terrible? Yeah. It's because they're connecting to it in an honest way. And then they learn too many tricks and they yeah. start to hide that And truth. they try to recreate things and they try to have that moment again instead of in that first moment where they're just genuinely in the moment you haven't talked to me about that but that's an interesting theory and i think it probably holds up and i think that what we then do is we spend all this time like building up all these things that take us away from our legitimate voice and then on our journey what we tend to do is try to then the process it's like like, almost like knocking back all those things and getting back to being in the moment like where you were when you first started Uh now often their jokes aren't even representing that like i like watching like new comedy because you Every act tells you so much about themselves, even if none of it's in the jokes. Yep. Like often just in how they're approaching it or who they are or what their person... The way they dismount from a joke. They're all like short films. Like it's really fascinating. And then we bland that all out and hide that and learn all these tricks and structures and blah, blah, blah. Yep. To the point where we get good enough that we then try to... And I mean, maybe you need to do all that. Maybe you need to learn all that like mechanics and whatever so that you can control replicating who you are in that moment every night. But... But I do think that when people first start, and that's, I also think that's why people often do well, like in the first couple of gigs, and then kind of start to not do well, is yeah. you know that you start to think this is how I do it rather than just be in the moment. Well, it's also, it's very hard. I think it's a really tricky skill to say something for the third time as if it's fresh. Right. Because I, I think, like even now, I think that's the case. Is a, as someone with over a decade of experience, I find it hard to... Like, the first the first time you out a new bit of material, a new joke idea, it often works great. And then the second time, and then the third time it doesn't quite work as well, and then the fourth time it doesn't quite work as well, and then you rebuild it up, and then eventually it's really working. But there's definitely a point where you lose... You There's a point in the evolution of a bit where you lose whatever it was that first made it worth saying. I and what I do now, like and and set list is like I mean again this goes back to set list because I think that when set list works and the advice I would ever give to anybody is, if you react in the moment that everybody's feeling, it will be funny. Yeah, the line doesn't necessarily be funny if you call if you're calling even in your look, thought, action, response to them, whatever, what everyone's feeling, it will be funny because you're funny and you ride that and you can sense that and all those sort of things. And that's kind of at the start a bit what you're doing. Like even if it's a nerve thing or whatever, you react directly to the audience because you haven't, like that's all you've got to go on, right? But actually that's what you should be doing. You should be reacting to the audience. Like in my show now, when I'm doing my touring show, even though by the end of that show, maybe the last two weeks, like 95% of that show would have been uh, similar every night, I reckon, by the last two weeks. There would have been no night that I did the stuff the same way and there would have been no night where I did every joke that is in that show. Right. Like getting to that point, we like with a routine, say, where you might have four or five beats to it, but on that night where you're at, being able to go from like and take three beats in it or take one bit out or like move some bit there or use it, approach it in a different way because whatever the mood was, you went to a different kind of energy or place. Uh, all those things that I think make it, then can make it fresh and you can connect to that I think that's important. It's something I don't do enough. And definitely when I've done runs in Edinburgh, I've noticed a point where suddenly my show goes to shit or at least like loses a certain amount of its effectiveness week three. And I think in early years, I put that down to 
tiredness or just general festival fatigue or the audience is getting, you know, for any number of external reasons. And actually really looking back on it, what it often was, was just, I lost the spark in that material. I was just, I lost the reason for saying it. And it was just, the show was too fixed. The show was too rehearsed. Yeah. And I'm just now recreating the sounds that I made a week and a half ago, rather than saying the things with the... I- Rather well, than conveying the idea behind the bit. You know what it's like? It's like uh, at the start of a relationship with somebody, like, you know, say the first time you sleep with somebody, yeah. like you can actually, um, I think, be very responsive to them because all you're doing is like trying to like work out what the signals are of what people like, don't like, you know, whatever. Like, you know, you're yeah. hyper aware. And you're very other- excited about every little discovery. Right, exactly. So you're in the moment, yeah. right? And... You also don't know where it's going necessarily. You don't know how it's meant to go or how long it will take to get to the next bit or the next thing or you yeah. know, which bit will be received well or won't be received well. So you're hyper aware of that. And then what you start to do is you in your mind go, well, this works, this works, this works. And then you yeah. start to cut, t- cut out all, some of that other like, stuff. This is the thing they like. Right. And then, like, by the time maybe you've settled into that relationship, you're like, well, you know, if I do this, this, I do this first, I do that first, then I do this bit, then I do yeah. that bit, and that will get the reco- – yeah, and, I, and history has taught me that that will get the reaction, whereas, like, that wasn't what history taught you. History taught you if you listened and responded and tried to, like, you know, be in tune with the other person, that that would actually be it's a more a great reward. analogy. That's – Every bit where the relationship starts to get a little bit dull, that's your third week of Edinburgh. Right. (laughs) (laughs) And you're blaming the flyers. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Or the the fact that the Perrier list came out and you weren't on it. And weirdly enough, I've got judges in tonight. So... (laughs) (laughs) Um, All right. Uh, Jupiter Jones... Um, Jupiter's parents, professional ballroom dancers. Uh, so there you go. So they were a show of his family. Right. Died in a car crash when he was four years old. Oh, okay. Ooh. So baby Fatso lost his parents in a car crash. And it was caused by his immaturity and girth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you thought that was like a stage name because he played baby Fatso. But actually, like, the police... And the like, the fire service who came, who the first responders on the scene said, "Listen, kiddo, if you hadn't been so immature and large, your parents would still be alive." <laughs> you are. That's why he hated the nickname. That famous picture of him on the front cover of the LA Times <laughs> in handcuffs. <laughs> Adult size handcuffs as well. That's how big his wrists were, even at the age of four. Uh, the New York Post really went hard on it. I remember when it just said, uh, what did it say? It said, uh, big baby, uh, fat baby. Huge shame. <laughs> <laughs> Huge crying shame. That's how babyish and large he was. Uh, all right. It said, like, I think it said in that article, if that kid doesn't grow up to solve mysteries, it'll be an utter waste of three lives. <laughs> uh, okay. Now he lives with Uncle Titus Jones and Aunt Matilda, who manage a salvage business. Oh, so he's gone from the glamour of, uh, you know, the Hollywood showbiz ballroom life to, you know, this the salvage yard, you know. But just goes to show that within that salvage business, their mysteries lie... It's a lesson for life. You know, you can find jewels, you can find gems in the most humble of 
places. Right. When life gives you uh, garbage, solve mysteries. Yeah. Um, is that where that expression comes that's from? That's where it well? comes from. Yeah, originally. Wow. Uh, Jupiter is plump. They keep bringing that up. <laughs> it really does. <laughs> okay. It feels like whoever wrote this Wikipedia <laughs> like, article had a bit of an it's agenda. Very, it's like, we fucking get it. <laughs> it's like, I could lose some weight, but I'm solving a lot of mysteries. <laughs> like, kid. That's fine. Jupiter's past acting ability benefits him frequently. Ah, oh, here we go. Right. When he has to play a big baby. <laughs> <laughs> Let's, that, that where the w- criminals are like, well, let's discuss our plans. There's nothing but this large baby in the room. <laughs> I mean, it <laughs> doesn't, safe to talk. It doesn't really explain how he can do any other character. <laughs> like, <laughs> oh no, Big Baby was just one. Baby Fatso was one of my characters. Yeah. I actually had 10 more characters. It was just Baby Fatso was the one that popped. Yeah. No one discusses silent lampshade. <laughs> it's, it's helped me solve a lot of mysteries. Innocuous grandma. That was another one. <laughs> innocuous grandma. Why does no one ever talk about innocuous <laughs> grandma? Um, what are you saying, baby fat? So, <laughs> it's, a, it's innocuous grandma. Um, because he can act older than he is. Oh, right. Well, that's even that's even counterintuitive because he was like a baby. But you know what? Like watching your parents die. Such right. a young age that I think that really ages you. Yeah, no, you're right. You gain a. He's got a darkness yeah. inside him that There's people a depth can recognise. Yeah, no, that, that's a, that's a really good point. They'd be like, this guy can't. This guy can't be 14, 13, 14. Look, he's seen things. You can see in his eyes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. Perform imitations of people when necessary and act less intelligent to I- extract information from potential suspects. Well, there's the baby fatso training yeah. again. Yeah. Uh, Jupiter is a prolific reader and inventor. So he'd be like, me dum-dum, tell me facts. <laughs> and they'd be like, well, might as well. He's not going to be able to repeat them. That's very self-serving to also a person who is writing a book. Yeah. To go, um, and, this, and this will be solved by somebody who loves books. <laughs> How good are books? Someone who's larger, loves books, and is actually a lot more intelligent than he might seem to people. Right. Like maybe sometimes he's actually acting a bit stupid uh, just to help get information out, but actually he's a lot smarter than that. So, so shut up. I wonder who the demographic for this. this is. <laughs> like this is. This I'm is... now picturing just like millions of other me's around the world. <laughs> uh, all right. Uh, Jupiter is a prolific reader and inventor, inventor, and frequently invents a device that simplifies solving a mystery. Uh, Jupiter has a knack for usually thinking about clues correctly to solve an un- otherwise unsolvable mystery. Right. He also likes to play pranks on the other two investigators. He's a bully. He's a workplace bully. <laughs> because of his intellectual side, Jupe is adept at using big words and frequently uses them to his advantage, particularly to seem older, annoy Pete, and startle adults. Yeah. You know how adults are startled by other words? <laughs> by a child. Encyclopedia. <laughs> <laughs> That's actually how the car crashed. <laughs> his parents, his ballroom parents were suddenly startled by a long word. <laughs> what would you like for Christmas, Jupiter? We love you so much. Loquacious. <laughs> <laughs> the irony. <laughs> Their final words were, never stop learning. (laughs) And you're smarter than people think you are. 
Hates to dismiss an unsolved mystery, which frequently means that he drags Bob and Pete along for the ride. Okay, so we've met Jupiter. He's your, he's your Sherlock Holmes, basically, right? Right. Uh, then there's Peter, Pete Crenshaw, second investigator. Pete is an athletic youth who dislikes dangerous situations, but is nonetheless reliable as the action member of the team. Pete loves and cares for animals and is fond of uttering the exclamation, Gleeps. <laughs> now, here's another thing. Maybe there's another formative thing on your... For, for you, but you do use the word gleeps a lot when you're startled. I mean... <laughs> and you like animals. It is true. I do love animals. And even though you might not race towards danger, if no. needed, you can. I mean, if needed... Hips permitting. First, I'd hobble towards danger. <laughs> That's what everyone will ever say about me. You'd hear the word gleeps from a distance. <laughs> and, then, and then again from pretty much the same distance. But I, Then I'd do a second gleeps <laughs> yeah. just so people could see how far away I still was. <laughs> and then probably, probably often a third gleeps. <laughs> what I've noticed is in a dangerous situation, uh, my capacity from where I can see a dangerous situation <laughs> to how many gleepses it will take me to limp there, it's about a three gleeps journey. Yeah, most danger is about three gleeps yeah, away yeah three gleeps <laughs> i can't run from any more than three gleeps away uh okay uh his father is a special effects man in hollywood that'll come in handy I oh know. that'll be but even though jupiter's the one who actually makes the who's inventing the things yeah his friend is the one with the special effects access to special effects okay yeah uh pete is a frequent companion of jupiter on stakeouts and other field trips particularly in the earlier mysteries Oh. All right. What went wrong? Oh, maybe they had a bit of a falling out. Or... Pete. One of them got a bit weird on one of their stakeouts. <laughs> <laughs> so, this is leading towards something, right? Yeah. Baby fatso. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, I don't. Of, of your listenership, there's got to be at least one person who also grew up with this book, and this is the best podcast they've ever <laughs> Let's hope. Let's hope we're... Because people often say, look, you know, if you only make one person laugh, it's worth it. Now, A, that's not true. Financially, not No way latest. to build a career in any Unless way. that person is maybe, you know, Warren Buffett or something. Oh, yeah, I guess. Like, or Gina Reinhardt or somebody. Yeah, Bill Gates. If you make Bill Gates laugh, laugh. really hard. And I, I don't know whether he laughs in the style of, like, a, like just scatters money, like in the sort yeah. of jab of the hut type... It comes out. It's like he's a poker machine paying out. Right. That's, that's ha, a, ha, ha. Yeah. Just throwing coins at you. Doesn't laugh a lot, but when he does, <laughs> he laughs money. Um, all right. Uh, they go on stakeouts together, uh, particularly in the earlier mysteries when Bob is unavailable. Oh, okay. Okay. So where does Bob then come Bob into? came along. This, is, right. this is what's happening. Yoko. While he might not have had the intellectual ability of Jupiter, Pete is nonetheless considered as an equal in the stories. And he's able to point out Jupiter's own shortcomings. Okay. Usually in comical fashion. So, so someone like Jupiter, who's someone as remarkable as Jupiter, probably needs a Pete just to oh, keep he him needs in check. A Pete. Like, you know, he is, he is Watson to Holmes. That's yeah. what he is. I mean, of course, you need that counterbalance to make you better. Yeah, and you need someone with the ability to speak truth to power. Right, exactly. Or, you know, well, I mean, look at Tony Stark in the, you know, in the Avengers franchise. I mean, like, he, I mean, he's hubris. And his arrogance are the things that, you know, eventually are the things that, you know, try to destroy us. I right. Mean. And if someone had maybe brought up more often his own experiences as a diaper-clad youth. Right. 
Uh, all right, here we go. He's capable of making deductions and sometimes serves as a clue bearer instead of Bob. He has an excellent sense of direction, as in the mystery of the stuttering parrot. Oh, that seems like a good one. <laughs> <laughs> it's only three pages of actual mystery and just like 92 pages of stutter. Yeah, <laughs> the mystery of the stuttering parrot. Yeah, it turns out the parrot used to live with a stutterer. Right. Just copied it. Actually, one of the most uh, brilliant <laughs> parrots of all time. Doing a perfect impression of somebody with a chronic stutter. I mean, it, in a sense, it's cruel. But the most simple explanation is often the truth. Yeah. So that's what it was. Uh, Robert Bob Andrews, let's find out about Yoko. Records and research. Oh, so he's not the third investigator. He's records and research. Okay. Uh, Bob is studious and meticulous and wears glasses. Ooh. His father is a newspaper man. And occasionally gives Bob helpful hints. Okay. So he's also good at like cataloging, journaling. Yeah. Research. Record keeping. Early in the series, Bob is hampered physically by a leg brace he wore due to multiple fractures inflicted when he rolled down a hill. Yeah. This handicap relegated him to a more studious and less physical involvement. Ah, so that's why he's not going on the stakeouts, you know, because he's... So he's the sort of, in Hollywood terms, he's the archetypal... Kid in a wheelchair who's good with computers. Well, I don't, yeah, I mean, that's absolutely what he is. Uh, have you ever watched the TV show uh, Person of Interest? Nope. Uh, it's, it's, I really like that show. It's, but it's like one of those, you know, computers taking over the world conspiracy shows. Right. And it's got uh, the dude who is from Lost. Uh, and uh, Never saw Lost. Michael, what is his name? Uh, anyway, you know who I am. He, he plays a great evil character. But in this, he's the, this is literally his character. Right. In this, he is Robert Bob Andrews. Okay. Because he's the guy who invented the supercomputer but is trying to use it to help like solve crimes. Got it. In fact, person of interest may be based on the life <laughs> of Robert Bob Andrews. Christopher Nolan and uh, – sorry, uh, Jonathan Nolan and J.J. Abrams might have been in a meeting together and gone, hey, what's our new show going to be like? And they would might have been like, hey, I really loved Alfred Hitchcock and the three investigators. But you know who I wanted to hear more about? Fucking Robert Bob Andrews. They're always focusing too much on on that little baby, that little fat baby. I mean, to be honest, like this is actually person of interest because person of interest is basically you have his character. So he's the guy who invented the computer and is now using it to like try to help people like, you know, not being killed and stuff, right? So personal interest is Nolan and Abrams together. Yeah. And, oh. And then it's... Uh, a. The lead is the guy who was Jesus, Jim Caviezel. Okay. Right. And... So he's like the muscle. So he's the ex, like CIA, FBI, fucking, you know, now, like, you know, right. he's the guy. So you've got the limpy, like, and he literally does walk with a limp in it, the computer right. guy, right? So he's Robert Bob Andrews. You've got Pete Crenshaw. That's your, that's your muscle. That's your action. That's your uh, Jim Caviezel. And then you've got this supercomputer that's smarter than everybody else. That's your Jupiter. That's your Jupiter Jones. Yeah. It's a modern day gritty reboot. God damn it. Uh, and it's introduced by a famous director. Bob works part-time in the local library, suiting his role as data collector. Perfect. Bob also serves as a clue bearer for many of the adventures because of his research at the library. Bob's leg brace is removed between the end of Whispering Mummy and the beginning of Green Ghost, much like the character on Person of Interest is now more out in the field helping them. This is, I think you've just solved a mystery of your own. This was the coolest bit about these things. Now I remember this. The office of the three investigators was a house trailer that was hidden among the piles of scrap in the salvage yard. Perfect. And had, this was the best bit, a series of secret entrances, right? 
Not just the one secret entrance. Now, as a kid, the idea that you have this like secret like hideout with yeah. all the secret, that was my... The headquarters had a small lab. It's now a meth lab. Right. Uh, a dark room, an office with desk, typewriter, telephone, tape recorder, and reference books. That's uh, that's what they used instead of a computer in those days. Right. <laughs> <laughs> all of that is an iPhone. Yeah. These days, the headquarters would contain an iPhone. <laughs> All right, Matt Kirshen, we should finish. Uh, I want to check these books out. uh, Tell me this, my friend. Yes. Uh, Where can people find you? Uh, They should listen to Probably Science, your uh, excellent podcast. That's very kind of you. Uh, Check out Will's episodes if you want to start off somewhere. Um, And then at Matt Kirshen on the Twitter and Facebook slash Matt Kirshen. And then um, trying to think what gigs I've got coming up. Uh, In the UK, if anyone's going to be at Glastonbury... I'm going to be performing on the cabaret stage in the theatre and circus field at some point on Friday and some point on Saturday. I don't know my stage times yet, but that will be on the app at some point. Or That's the awesome. Program. That'll be fun. Yeah, I try to go back every year for the festival. It's basically a chance for me to catch up with my best Brit friends. And go to the festival. And go to the festival. Yeah. No, perfect. And then the gig... The gig is sometimes amazing and sometimes trickier. Like any, any music festival gig, you're right. very much at the mercy of... Timing, yeah, sounds, it's, bands, it's such a weather. subtle thing of what happens to be happening at the exact moment you're on. Sure. If if there's no band on that everyone wants to see at that moment, and yep. suddenly it rains it a bit, massive. then you get two thousand people cramming into your tent, and it's amazing. And if you start just at the same time that the Rolling Stones start, then you're playing to seven people, and you're sat on the edge of the stage having a chat. But because it, when it's the Rolling Stones, even people who don't like the Rolling Stones are like, "Well, I'm going to go and have a look at the you Rolling might Stones." Might as well, yeah. I'm tossing up between Matt Kirshen and Rolling Stones. Yeah, <laughs> I might get a chance to see him again. So, <laughs> yeah. So you're you're very much at the mercy of what of a thousand other factors. Um, but the festival's amazing and it's great and it's just and everyone's kind of chill as well. Different festivals have different attitudes and different and the audiences reflect that. And Glastonbury's sort of the daddy of them all, and it's just nice. It's fun. I'm a fan. I will also be in London. Uh, so oh, yeah. Uh, Soho Theatre two weeks doing my free will show. Uh, so please come and see that. Uh, the first couple of nights are a little bit cheaper because it's previews and stuff. So if you want a cheaper ticket, but they're actually all, you know, those shows are very reasonably priced. Uh, and on the June the 6th, uh, Saturday night, June the 6th, we're doing the first ever live faux fop in the UK, also at the Soho Theatre. Um, Felicity Ward is already uh, booked as a guest and Matt's just given me a great list of people uh, as suggestions. So um, I will let you know who the other guests or, guests or guests will be when we get close to that. But um, it will be really good fun. So please come along to that. That'll be really excellent. And then after that, I'm doing Free Will here in uh, Los Angeles on July the 11th at uh, the Nerd Melt Theatre. I will be doing Free Will at the Montreal Just for Last Festival as well as a whole bunch of other gigs there. And I will be doing Free Will uh, in Sydney and Perth so Sydney and Perth, both of those shows are on. Uh, both of those uh, tours are on sale right now. And I should point out because last year I did two Sydney seasons because we did the earlier season uh, at the end more, but then we also did a season at the Opera House later in the year. I just should point out so people know that these are the only Sydney shows of uh, Free Will that we're doing this year. So if you want to see Free Will, then. Um, uh, come to these shows. That would oh. be cool. Also, I forgot I'm going to be back at Rooster Tea Feathers again, oh, which is nice. the club I've played more than, I think outside of LA, I've played that club more than any other club in the US, but it's a, it's a good club. In sunny, it, it, it's a weirdly good club in a, in a very strange bit of California. In the middle of nowhere. It's in the middle of nowhere. I told you Silicon that Valley's just up the road. was there though, right? Yeah. 
You've got to go and play mini golf I've at that really cool mini golf place. I will do that. Uh, second week of September, I'm going to be there. So anyone in or near Silicon Valley, go along to that. You know what? There is some people that's in this podcast who go to that because um, uh, I because I did that gig just when I came back from Melbourne. I went yeah. and did a week down there, and there were plenty of people who came and said they liked the podcast. So ha- please go and see Matt. Haven't yeah. worked out my details, but I might be recording my next album there. I might just because. I always have fun there, and they're a good crowd. I, I've told this story, so I won't, I won't get bogged down in it. But I, it was the first gig I did in America post uh, my festival touring season back yep. home. So on the first night when I was going down there, I was like, you know what? I'm just going to try as much of my new stuff. Like I've been doing 70 minutes or whatever at, on the tour. Let's see if 45 minutes of it, which is what I was meant to do, you know, can I, can, I, can I do 45 minutes is all from the new show rather than just like relying on any old stuff or any even yep. just to like – and on that first night, I did. It was all the new stuff, and it was so. You can do that in that room, like it's yeah. It's and then on the second night, so this was the thing I was going to tell you was there was a bachelor party in, right? Which, you know, so I'm going to talk to them, right? And I'm having a chat, and of course, yeah, I'm so heteronormative from all my years of doing fucking. I'm like, and what's your lovely fiance's name? And he's like Philip, and I right. was like, oh yeah, of course, because you know, yeah, gay people can get married because you know, you guys you know, realize that people are, you know, created equal and shouldn't have, you know, different rights and responsibilities. So, but then I got to talk to him about like the fact that like, you know, they both got to have bachelor parties and. Yeah. Do they have separate? Because often like for same, for same sex marriages, they'll have a joint bachelor party or bachelorette. they had separate ones. And then I, so then I talked all about that and I talked about who had been at both and like, you know, whose was better and all this sort of stuff. And it went for 35 minutes, this whole thing. All right. And they, I talked to them at the bar afterwards and they said that they had other audience members come up and thank them. Right. <laughs> like, they were like, thank you so much. This was really good to be part of this tonight. And I was like, oh, hang on. Like, I mean, yes, they brought some good stuff to the table once I started asking. I but... did. The... <laughs> <laughs> they were the mystery box. Let's just remember that they were the mystery box. You're basically saying that it's like you've, got, you've gone to a restaurant and they've thanked the meat. Yeah. <laughs> That's exactly. <laughs> oh, thank you, Matt Kirshen. Thank you, Will. As always, it's a joy.